Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I never just work on one painting at a time. I need space for it to breathe. I need space for me to look at it and review what I'm doing and just think about what I'm doing. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Esty McLeod. In the episode, you'll learn about the versatility of high-flow acrylics, ways shape motifs can help define a style, and how a sketchbook may be the key to building your artistic voice. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 17 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you want to say hello, email me at learntopaintpodcast at gmail.com. All right, here we go. Hi, Esty. Thank you for joining us today. How did you get started with art? That's a difficult one because it's pretty much part of my life had always been, and it's not as if it's a point that I sort of started doing it. It was something my parents realized I will become from a very early age two, three, it was sort of always steered in that direction or supported, I would say. So it was more a case of how will I make it work as an artist rather than can I become an artist or will this be part of my life? It is my life's work, so to speak. It is something that is intrinsically part of me. Well, then how did you find acrylic painting specifically? When I studied textile design in the 80s, the medium was pretty much gouache on paper. And then as part of my studies and also moving on from that, painting on acrylic was sort of the first step, really, for learning to paint as a student. So I did acrylic painting, and I can't say I did particularly like it very much, moved on to oil, because that was sort of the next step up in terms of you getting better with painting. And then over time, 20 years ago, around 2000, I changed from painting in oil to acrylic because the acrylic paint commercially available were a much broader range of paint and paint mediums, and it still continue to develop. So you, you nowadays have much more of a variety within acrylic paint that I feel in some ways it surpassed oil. So even though I really like oil and painting in oil, and that was the first medium that I really used as a fine artist painting on canvas, I feel I can do more and it's just a more versatile material using acrylic paint and acrylic mediums in particular as well, using the two in combination. Well, then let's jump into materials a little bit. So just first off, what substrates do you use? What do you paint on for your own work? My go-to surface is typically a linen canvas or a fine cotton canvas, but I quite like a linen canvas for two reasons. The one is it's really smooth, like a smooth paper. And I like working in very thin layers and it actually replicates often oil paint. People often think it is, I am painting in oil and, and translucency is important. And then secondly, when you use a canvas and the grain is really pronounced, it's not a fine grain. It shows up when you use the images as designs. 
And that is part of my art practice. I'm a painter, but I'm also a designer. So my paintings are the sources of my designs. So I use a canvas and often it comes prepared, but I typically will prepare it again with another layer of either gesso or a surface such as pumice gel. Pumice gel is a medium ideally suited for if you want to draw on a canvas, if you want to use mixed media on a canvas. So it gives it a little bit of tooth. So those would be almost my go-to surfaces to paint on. Also, what I want to add to that is regardless of the canvas, unless it's a really superior grape canvas, I would always recommend painting a layer of either paint medium or gesso or another surface before you paint on the canvas. Never just go straight onto the canvas. That's just sort of something I feel will pay off. You just get a better result because sometimes the commercially available canvases are quite plastic. He had a sort of very plasticky feel to it, a slightly sheen to it. So this is sort of something I found over time. Does that also give you sort of a consistent starting point? It doesn't matter what kind of canvas you have. You'll sort of know what to expect when you lay that first brush stroke down. Yes, it makes the process easier because then it allows you, if you say, I want to make my first layer is quite watery or I want to use mixed media, I want to bring in drawing materials, then you know you can rely on it. As in, for instance, a pumice gel which to explain to people who are not familiar with it, it's a bit like using a slightly abrasive toothpaste. It's sort of slightly granular and you apply it on a very, very thin layer on the canvas and it just gives it a bit of tooth, almost like a very fine sandpaper. It's not quite as extreme as that, but that will give you an idea. And the subsequent layers will sit happily on it. You're not going to see it in the end, as in it's not going to you know, all of a sudden create a very textured canvas unless you want it to be. It's a better surface for this to play with than if you work just straight on a, as I said, a commercial canvas. For your acrylics, what type of acrylics do you use? If you asked me five years ago, I would have told you I use mostly heavy body acrylics, paint with an impasto feel. And then over time, especially the last three years, I have completely changed to highly fluid acrylics, high flow acrylics and fluid acrylics, golden in particular, because I find it is so versatile. I can go from working with the paint as if it's ink to mixing it with paint medium so it becomes more like a regular acrylic. And then also mixing it with paint mediums, that's more like, again, like a gel, like a heavy body paint medium. So it's one way to create more with one paint. And for those who think, oh, you can just dilute the paint, why don't you just dilute heavy body paint with water to get a more runny paint? It just doesn't work like that. The recipe, the consistency, the, the paint is a little bit more like almost like a kind of blood that sort of will congeal as it, as it solidifies, whereas paint that's thinned with water is more like a soup, a broth. You know, it still is watery. It doesn't have that sort of gloopiness to it. So that's been something that's completely changed the way I work. It's completely revolutionized it, in fact. I'm pretty familiar with taking something like a, a fluid acrylic or a heavy body and adding mediums to thin it. But I've never thought about taking something that's really thin, like high flow, and thickening it, going the other way. Does Mm -hmm. that mean that you work almost exclusively in super transparent layers? I wouldn't say super transparent, but transparency is very much part of the process. So the high flow 
I just want to explain quickly. This is an acrylic ink. Or if you look at acrylic inks, you have various brands making them. Some actually has like a little dropper that you can use for the bottle. So you, the idea is to sort of add drops of it. And so you can work quite watery. So say if you weren't going to work on that paper, you can use it almost like watercolor. So you can use it with no mediums to it. And then when you add the mediums to it, that's just how it then becomes an entirely different paint. So you can, by the mediums that's added to it, you can control the translucency. And then the other point I just want to make about it, people might think, oh, but a heavy paint has got more pigment to it. And then you have this ink. Why, again, don't you just dilute the heavy paint? And the fact of the matter is that for golden in particular, all the paint have got the same pigment concentration. So it's it's very concentrated. And high flow used to be the paint that was used for airbrush. So it's actually an airbrush paint. And by that, if you want to sort of understand the paint, it's a paint that wants to be applied very thinly in its pure form. It's very concentrated, very intense paint, even applied in a very thin layer. So that means it leans itself to be used with the mediums and for layering. We have this idea, and clearly I'm falling into it too, that just because it's a thinner paint in its viscosity mean that it's more transparent. But the CADs would still be pretty opaque. The quinacridones would still be pretty translucent, even in that high flow state, that they, the paints still have their characteristics. Yes and no. It depends on the paints and on how thick the layer is. So there is a level of variation. For example, you use an opaque paint, something like ultramarine blue or thallo blue, that's supposed to be opaque, and you paint it over red. It's not going to obliterate the paint underneath it. It will still shine through it to a degree but it is again depending on the concentration you use if it's used in its undiluted concentration it will give you quite a good coverage but it will be in this case probably better to have a bit of matte medium or paint medium mixed into it to make the paint a bit heavier as in a bit thicker so the literally the physical application is a heavier brush stroke rather than the very thin paint as in physically a thin layer on top if that makes sense again it's something that if you work with it you might consider how opaque you want the paint to be so it's it's a bit of trial and error but i find it workable you just have to then consider the colors you are using in terms of having it opaque on top of another color and it's not that different from regular acrylics in terms of the opacity that you get with layering what's the biggest challenge you see your students running into with materials I think people just use too much paint to paint with. They dispense too much paint and they overload the brushes. Start with using less, typically. Not always, but just use the paint more sparingly. If you use a good professional paint, there's less binder in it to start with. It's it's stronger in pigment and then use paint mediums for it. And this is not to say people shouldn't just play. That's not what I mean. I just think it is sometimes consider the paint and the colors you're working with and just almost gradually build up. So I like to teach by getting people to understand the color and mixing color. So to simplify it rather than jumping and making a a big painting and all the colors all of a sudden using it together. So that is something I, I sort of break it down, simplify it. And I find it's easier to get people to become more confident with it in that way, rather than just sort of grabbing all the paints and having it go. 
Where does someone start in terms of that simplification that you were talking about when they're entering this sort of incredible world of possibilities when it comes to acrylics and the mediums? There's so much you can explore and there's so many different things you can discover. But I would recommend for people to use basic colors, as in the colors that you can mix to get more, because that's how you're going to learn about color. So you don't need to buy a whole rainbow of colors. Buy a paint medium. I can use all the paint mediums, but I typically stick to to one, which is a matte medium, because it is so versatile and it allows me to do the layering and there's a bit of tooth in it and allows me to build up. So I would say just do it in bite sizes, especially in the beginning, or especially if it's something you want to try new. But people have sometimes have the idea, but then I should just work with student grade material because I'm still learning and I might, I don't want to sort of be wasteful yet. And that is a, that's a good point. But if you use a paint that it is student grade, there's more binders in it and the paint will, you'll get less coverage from it. As in, it, it will just not give you the, the intensity that you need, even in its pure undiluted form. And then what happens is you lose the integrity of your mark because you have to cover it so many times. So if you can have a paint where in with one brush stroke, you get a better coverage, you get a better expressive mark than sort of having to go over and over it again, you lose something there. So that's one reason why I would say you don't need so many colors, but buy fewer colors and the best you can afford and then build up from there and teach yourself about how to mix the colors up. It's not difficult. It is something which pays off. It is a bit like you were to compare it to baking or, you know, it's like using different ingredients, but you know, these ingredients are all good. But it's like sort of trying to make the most of it. And if you're really interested in the subject, it is something that will pay off. This is how you learn about color and you will become more intuitive. That is something I've learned as a teacher is to get people to really mix colors from you know, just using the basic colors, your basic primaries, but then also your modern colors like your magenta and sallow blue, because you can basically create the whole spectrum of colors from those. So with materials, I want to bring one point across, and this is something that I it came up when I had a discussion with a tutor. We were talking about clay because I, I used to be a ceramicist as well. And we were talking about two kinds of porcelain clay. And this teacher, we were just saying, so, so which one is better? And the one was quite an expensive clay and the other one was slightly expensive as well but not as much as the one I was sort of contemplating buying and he said well the not so expensive one will you know it's going to give you mostly good results but you will probably have a 20% failure rate with the other one is you will be it will be a more pleasant working experience and your success rate will be more so in other words it is actually better value to buy the more expensive one because ultimately it's about your time and this is the thing that we are in this place and where we are in this year that we're living in. Most people are time poor. And if you can use materials that give you a better result, then use them. And I am very much not oblivious to the cost of materials. I've been an artist all my life, so I know about really having to budget for it. But 
again, this is something, you know, there are birthdays and holidays and Christmas gifts, you know, how many candles do you need? Or people always struggle with buying gifts for a loved one. If somebody knows they want to do art and you have a little wish list of art materials, you know, somebody can buy you a brush that will completely change your experience in painting. You don't have to use inadequate material. There are practical ways of getting really good material. Limited source, but buy really good material. It is something I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I mentioned it a lot. You can make a masterpiece painting with coffee on a on the back of an envelope. And I'm sure I have done that as well. But it's about the longevity of, of work as well. It's just something worth considering. This is something I'm putting out there. Also, if you have children who are interested in doing art, buy them good material because children, I've seen this in teaching in schools, children respond to using good material. If you use a good material and you explain to them it's a good material and why they need to be cautious of it, they will respond favorably. I, I really do think so. Adjusting a little bit into your process, could you just walk us through your process, how you develop a painting? into a finished piece? I don't have a particularly orthodox way of painting, but one component that's really important, and this is another thing that I like to emphasize in teaching, is to draw. People might sometimes say, oh, but I draw badly. I don't like my drawings. That doesn't matter. You draw in a sketchbook, and that's where you plan. It's like making notes, annotations, but it's little visual clues. It's about this is where you create those basic ideas for you to then work from. These are your reference points. These are the bits you go back to. It's about where you do the composition, basic designs. So have that as a reference point. I find that to be a really good anchor point. And it might not be that I, you know, sketch out a painting beforehand in a, in a sketchbook and then this is what I'm painting. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a, a sort of a general reference. So for example, if you like to paint flowers, make observational sketches about using flowers it will pay off regardless of what flowers you are painting invest in your time and the way you interpret what you see because this is what builds your artistic voice it comes from the very basics it comes from literally making drawings in the same way as your handwriting is not the same as anyone else's your drawings are not the same as anyone else's drawing so this is where it starts off okay so to bring it back to me I sketch all the time. Slightly chaotic and it's it's different things that I draw, but it's good to have these physical notes and almost like a mental note as well. So for example, if I'm working towards an exhibition and it's going to be in springtime, I will typically make paintings that will feature flowers, sometimes maybe landscape and then still life paintings and uh, floral and bird paintings as well. So I have that in the back of my mind. So I work with a sort of almost a general theme and I will think about the colors I want to use. And it's literally, that's where that intuitiveness comes in. So there is a lot of intuitive playfulness about it. I don't then go and draw everything out in a pencil on my painting. I do this in a sketchbook. I use it as a reference and I might sketch out with a paintbrush and outline it, but it's not, not necessarily even that. So I work with the colors, I have my prepared canvas, and then I paint. Now, this is where it's also a little bit unorthodox, but I'm sure there are several artists who are doing the same way. I never just work on one painting at a time. I need space for it to breathe. I need space for me to look at it and review what I'm doing and 
just think about what I'm doing. And this is sometimes, this is also what I would say, if you're a student or if you're learning, sometimes the pressure is a little bit much to, I now have to work on this painting and I'm going to get it finished and I'm going to get it right and I'm going to work on it. And that's where you sometimes kill it. You kill the essence of it by then it becomes overworked or it becomes very laborious and you become too involved in it and it loses the spark. It's, it's important to retain that spark, the brush strokes, the, the idea of working with it, the freshness of it. So I will work on a painting, but then at the same time, I would have already worked on others. It could be within the same theme, same coloration, same idea, or it might be different. But I, I would typically not in the same time work on, say, I work on a bird and floral painting. It will be still life painting. I'm not all of a sudden going to work on a winter landscape painting. So I work in the same sort of context and coloration, broadly speaking, with a group of paintings at the same time. In terms of how I go to the process from there, I never paint a painting in one day. It typically is over a few days. It sometimes can be over a few weeks and occasions over a few months. And this would typically be if I'm experimenting with something new, trying new techniques, being a bit more um, adventurous with combining colors or techniques or processes or materials, and I need time to work it out. Occasionally, I will do a painting in a day, but it's nine times out of ten, I don't. So while you're in the process of painting, do you have reference points or things that help you know you're at certain places in it or things you're looking out for while you're painting? I definitely do because it, it's about the balance of a painting. So any painting I have, I must be able to divide it into nine blocks and each of the nine blocks has to have something interesting in it or be in balance with the others. The balance is color balance and what goes on inside it. So it's about how these different areas of the painting relate to each other. This is something I even do when I do a, a sketch of a painting, when I plan a painting, is to go, okay, if I'm going to go florals all over, which side am I going to start? Where do I want it to be calmer? What's going to happen in there so it, it's not completely unbalanced? So that is something I would do. Colors typically will go, okay, I'm going to use for this one, it will be salmons and pinks and browns and blues and a petrol blue. And maybe just for a bit of interest, I will throw in a sharp yellow or sharp green. But it is, there's a cognitive process there. It's not just intuitively play, but it, it intermingles. It, it is, at some point, it could just be that play takes over. But there is a process in it. I'm not just madly throwing things together. It might look it, but there is a, a method in the madness. So another point that I want to highlight is components in a painting. So say, for instance, I make a painting with flowers. I will have sort of three focal flowers, or three areas or five where there are things happening. I will not do it in four or two or six typically. I just find it works better if you have an odd number. It's easier to balance it. It's easier for the eye to go around. So that's the one thing that I would look for. So this is part of the beginning stages, sort of third into the painting. And sometimes I might literally move a painting upside down and see, is anything bothering me? Then when I paint, I will apply these different layers. And as I said, I apply quite thinly. I use quite a bit of matte medium, or painting medium in it, in order to retain the translucency and build it up. And then I will look at the motives and shapes that I have in the painting. How do you deal with shapes and repetition? So I am mindful that if I have a shape, a pattern, 
a particular motif in the painting to repeat it because that makes the eye go around. So, for example, I have a particular flower shape or petal shape. I will make sure that this is repeated. It could be very subtle, the color could be different, but there need to be repetition of shapes and patterns in order for the painting to be cohesive, for the painting to be restful. Um, so sometimes I will then deliberately add a, a killer shape and this might not even have anything to do with the painting as a whole. So for example, if I have painting of flowers and then I have a pattern, say almost like a star shape or something that I bring in and I will repeat it and it will look like a piece of foliage or plant or seed. It will make the eye think it's that, but it's a shape that I deliberately add and I will deliberately use this shape in a number of paintings. I like having little dots of color in my paintings. I don't paint realistic, but my paintings are closer to realism than it is to abstract paintings. So it sits in between those two. And sometimes it, it sits very much in between the two, but there are still recognizable shapes and I can break it down. I can simplify it more. I can blow it up. I can work in scale. I can change it. So as long as I am mindful of the harmony of the colors that I have in it, the repetition of shapes and patterns, the fact that I need sort of three to five objects to be in balance. There's a, I want to say synchronicity or there's a cohesiveness to them. There's a balance in the painting. Then as long as I'm, I'm mindful of that, these components are all there. Then I'm, I progress from it. How does it translate between different subjects that you paint? I have three main subjects, landscapes to life, and floral and bird paintings. So for example, if I have a shape that is sort of like a leaf shape, foliage, then this foliage shape could be a tree. And it's a particular way of rendering and bringing in those shapes and the lines in the tree, which is similar to how it is in a leaf in a flower painting or in a still life painting. Uh, sometimes it can be simpler. It could be a row of little stripe marks, as in the rhythm of it. So I can have a line with lots of little lines made by a brush. So you have this in a landscape painting, and it repeats in the landscape painting. But it's the rhythm, the difference, the concentration of it. And then I can repeat that in a still life painting, in the decoration on a vase, table decoration, a textile, background, something on the wall, or in the way I render the paint on flowers or foliage. In the same way with the floral painting, I am fond of using a sort of a star shape, almost a crisscross shape. And this I sometimes just throw into a, a still life and it looks like a seed pot. It could also be, again, be a decoration. And then with flower, bird, foliage paintings, it, again, it's just sort of can be quite subtle from anything from a flower decoration to part of a bird to just in the background. And then with a landscape, it might not be so obvious, but I might subtly bring that in the foreground when you have like a meadow and you bring flowers with those shapes and patterns in as well. It becomes less noticeable, or I might admit that completely, if it's a more abstract painting where it's all about color and you will have mostly squares. And for instance, if you have a barn and a tree that you will expect to sort of see of a, in a kind of landscape painting, then it's all going to be blocks and different colors and the indication of yellow block will be a, a window. So I don't have a method for it, but it's just something that I found over time. If you have particular shapes that you use in your work, it's part of what shows your artistic voice, your particular language of painting. 
what identifies your style. Well, and you talked about the importance of drawing for you in developing some of that. Why do you think people, especially beginners, are so scared of drawing as a thing? I can only guess as to why that is, but I think the one reason could be that people work more digitally and maybe in the education systems all over the world, it's much easier to take something, trace it, you know, why would you draw a butterfly if you can just trace a perfect one? Why wouldn't it go to that effort? And they lose the ability to properly observe. And this is really, really important. It is important to draw. So, so you ask somebody to draw a figure and you, you see they will deliberately not draw their hands and feet. And it immediately draws your attention to the, the fact that they struggle with that. And to what I would say to a person is then draw the person you, you're drawing, draw them in a way you never see the hand or feet or practice drawing the hand and feet. So you have to rethink that. If you're going to use something as your subject matter, then make sure you are as prepared as you can be. How does someone get better at drawing? I would say to draw literally what you find in front of you. It's as simple as saying, well, what's my subject matter? I don't, I don't have flowers. I don't have, I live in a flat. It's like, okay, fine, look in your vegetable drawer. Draw a lemon. Cut the lemon up. What's inside the lemon? Draw the little cells. Draw the seed. Literally, you know, dissect things and see what you can find there. Take a blade of grass. Take a piece of foliage, a leaf. Turn it inside out. What are you interested in? Are you interested in nature scenes? Then make a point of going out and drawing in a park. If you're interested in people, sit in a coffee shop and draw people draw expressions. Yeah, always have a sketchbook with you. If you sit in front of the TV, you can sit with a sketchbook and just doodle. If you're more interested in patterns and um, if you're not sure, just always have a sketchbook with you. If you want to, you will find ways to do it. Something else that I find useful in myself, even though I don't really do figures much, is to go for figure drawing classes or groups where you can literally just go and do figure drawing. You can find these online as well. So if you want to do it, find ways to make yourself more confident as an artist with drawing in particular as, as your medium. So, so make sure you bring that into your practice in some way or form. And let me just also point out there, it's not about drawing perfectly realistic drawings of people's hands and feet. It is about developing your ability to make a good mark, to draw from observation, and it identifies your style of working. It helps, it informs you, but it's good to include drawing as a, as a component of your art practice. Right, but what I hear you saying is, do that outside of your painting. Like if you know you wanna paint flowers, don't have the first time you're practicing putting a flower down be on your canvas where there's an expectation of a finished painting. Absolutely, Absolutely. yes, come prepared. and. Again, it is, is some, this is something I think about a lot, speaking to people who are aspiring artists or people who, you know, who are sort of on this journey of becoming an artist. If you wanted to be a musician, you will be expected to do a lot of practicing. You will never expect of yourself to all of a sudden just be able to play a piano perfectly. Obviously, it comes with the knowledge that you need to practice. And art is not that much different from it. You still need to put in the hours. You still need to practice. The difference coming that you can immediately see the result. So it's a difficult one. You know, you practice music and you feel it becomes easier. 
but it's out and it's gone the minute it's been finished playing. But the painting that you've done or the drawing, you have the evidence of it. And people should not be discouraged by that the painting looks nothing like how I wanted it to be. What can you learn from it? Don't get disheartened. Don't lose faith in it, but find ways of then making sure you can do that to get better at it. One of the things I know that you do is do um, smaller drawing experiments. For example, you'll start with a letter and then turn it into something or start with something that's not a pig, but then the challenge is to turn it into a pig. Could you talk about some of those prompts you use and why you approach it that way? What does that help students do when they approach it that way? As humans, as we go through life, all children can draw. There's not a child who can't draw, not really. There's not a five-year-old child that can't draw or express themselves through drawing, typically, if they had been given paint and, you know, crayons to do art. But then it changes as you learn to write, and all of a sudden the need to sort of communicate or express yourself with art diminishes drastically. So I thought if if I can utilise handwriting and the letters of the alphabet that we all are familiar with, if that is the starting point, then it's so much easier than having just a blank paper. So this is an exercise I do. I, I do it in most of my courses, even though it's a painting course. I'll give you an example. So if I tell you to draw 26 flowers, I give you one sheet of paper and I say, can you draw 26 different flowers for me? Then most people will, but it's going to be quite hard thing to do. So, you know, people might go and say, okay, fine, I'm going to draw a rose. And they're going to start thinking, what does a rose look like? Oh, I know, I'll go on a Pinterest board and I'll look it up. And then by the time you get to pansy and daisy and daffodil, and so all of a sudden it becomes very laborious and hard to do. If you say to somebody, write down A to Z on a piece of paper, and then you turn each and every shape into a flower, you will get results that are not the same for two people. And this is part of the magic of creativity. Now, it could be that people say, well, I only like three of them. doesn't matter. You've done this in five minutes and you've come up with three flowers that you like. You will surprise yourself. It's a way to draw, even though it's a very, very simple way. You use your imagination, and I call it creative problem solving, by turning something which you are familiar with into something different, but completing the task in this way. It's very satisfying. It takes a bit of practice, and people say it does hurt their brain a little bit to do it, but it's very, very effective. And children can do it, and grown-ups can do it. And so this is a tool that I use for adults, in particular in the courses, where I say, well, I want to see 26 imaginary flowers. Just, Just draw them. And I'm always surprised because people come up with such a variety of shapes and and outcomes and it's it takes the pressure off it takes the pressure of oh I can't draw it you can draw it because it's literally just a case of altering the shape a little bit and all of a sudden you have a flower looking like a daisy or a pendulous flower or you turn the the, off the page completely sideways and all of a sudden it will pop up as a new option new idea and you can use this for insects and birds and fish and you know hats it can be applied in different ways and it's just it is an icebreaker and it's a way to make it easier to draw to be creative it's a starting point what do you see keeping people from being creative it's a mindset i think mostly it's something where as you say it is that thing of but i can't i don't draw 
No, you just haven't been drawing. It's not you can't draw. That's it. Of course you can draw. Everyone can draw. It's when you say you can't draw means my drawings don't look like a professional artist's drawings. You can still draw. You can still make observational drawings. I can't draw a lion looking like a lion. I mean, I, I can if you tell me I have to, but I don't want to do this. This is not what I enjoy drawing. So this also comes into it, as in you have to enjoy what you are drawing, but find things that, that you are interested in drawing. If you want to do art, if this is something that you want to include, if you want to be more creative, drawing is important. It will make your paintings better. It will make whatever you do in art better. I fundamentally believe that. You talk about, and we talked before we got on the official call, that one of your goals is to help people get back to their inner five-year-old. And what is important about getting back to that place? And how do you help people get back to that place of their inner five-year-old? I think by going back to the basics, by really having very tight guidelines. When I teach in courses, I teach in small increments. I teach with little daily projects that build up to bigger projects. And if I get people to just focus on the little projects, then it's much easier to explain the bigger concept, the bigger idea behind it. It can be overwhelming to, to try and figure out what you, you sort of need to do, especially if you're really new to it. So I break it down. I get people to literally use fewer colors in the beginning. I have a very particular list of materials and I research it so much that I, by the time I sort of propose what to be used, I know what the results will be from that as well. So because I use only the materials in explaining the processes, getting to colors and obtaining techniques, therefore if I can help people best in terms of teaching online. By If people then show me something and say, I'm struggling with this, then I can explain to them better because I'm using the same materials as they are using. This is one way of doing it by, again, just having a quite a small list of materials, but very specific. That's, that's one way of obtaining that. There's also just something about, there's a way that you can play when you know what your materials do. I absolutely agree. If you have the creativity, you will create with very limited materials. But yes, it's about if you are interested in getting better, familiarizing yourself with what different medium will allow you to do. It is incredibly empowering using material that you know will not let you down. It, it Definitely. I started uh, more recently in courses telling people to use a really expensive watercolor paper. But it's just such a beautiful watercolor paper that even if the painting is a complete mess, there's a way of salvaging and by just using the substrate again, because of the medium that I teach it, so it's watercolor and acrylic. And again, I was talking earlier about, on about high flow by basically combining watercolor medium and then combining it with ink. So you can cover the entire painting with black high flow ink and it become an opaque black paper. And you can then work on it still. So it's not a lost painting. So it's worth experimenting on. And this is what you get from a really good watercolor paper, for example. So yeah, it does make a difference. I see it sometimes in schools where I think if the list of materials were just, just included a little bit of paint medium, this child will excel in so many ways. He's hampered by the fact that he doesn't know, he or she doesn't know the material properties properly and only use water 
as a paint medium for acrylic. There are other options and it will make your painting so much better. I'm an advocate for using paint mediums. This is my biggest message almost as an artist. If you paint and you use acrylic for painting, you always use paint medium, not as in every single brush stroke, but have it to hand because it makes painting better. What is that watercolor paper that you said is so great? I'll show it to you. Oh, Arches. It's the fine cold press. It's the, not the most expensive paper, but it's, it is not cheap. And it's the 140 pound? Yes. What challenges do you see students facing with color? Color is a very big thing. It's probably alongside drawing is the other main component in paintings that can let you down. So color, a sense of color is something that can be developed. And there are different ways of doing it. One is by literally limiting your source of color and mixing up paint, creating more colors. This will develop your sense of color. Then there are other examples as well of how to sort of make color relevant. By that, I mean what colors are trending. And you could think, well, I'm a painter. I don't paint fashion colors. But you do to a degree. If you know the current trend is to work in salmon and blue and gray and sap green, then it makes sense to include it in your work if you can, if you like it, at least consider it. How do I mix these colors up? It's as simple as looking in a magazine, look in an interior magazine, cut out bits of paper and create color wheels for you, put them together. What do you like about them? Do it over a few days, do it over a weekend, do it in the evening while you watch TV. It's something which you will look back on and go, wow, did I put those colors together? I didn't realize I liked them. I didn't like this color. I don't like working in brown. Oh, it actually looks really good with this and this. This is, again, little steps, little things you can do that are incredibly potent because you put those colors together, but you use it from a reference point of tapping into something like a, a magazine where people are experts in color prediction from anything from the ads that you see in it to the kitchens and bathrooms and bedrooms and living rooms. It's there. It's a fantastic source to use for something as painting. Paintings end up in these rooms, so don't discount it. The other problem I sometimes see is people don't this is what happens if when you paint out of a tube, if you take a tube of paint and you put that on your palette and you use it straight like that, it's too pure, it's too clean, it's too fresh, it sits too brightly together with other colors. So learn to mix them up. Set yourself challenges by, you know, we have this theory of a oh, red and blue makes purple. Well, which red and which blue make, make, make white purple? You can take a, a, a scarlet and an ultramarine and the purple is not particularly bright. And it will never be because of the base of the colors. To make a very bright purple, you need magenta and ultramarine. To make a very bright green, you need a sallow blue and a bright yellow, primary yellow. By using ultramarine blue and a primary yellow, the green will remain a forest dull green. But do the experiments yourself. Don't go in, in a guidebook and because sometimes they say, oh, these are the primaries and then your secondaries are, and they show these bright colors, but you never got those by mixing the two. So teach yourself, show it to yourself, experiment your, yourself by discovering more. I have once by complete accident discovered the best gray. I had an orange which spilled into a teal blue and it's a beautiful gray. I almost never use black in my paintings because there are alternatives to it. 
you don't have to go so harsh as a black line, obviously, unless you want to. But, you know, if, if you are interested in color, look at alternatives. Don't go for the obvious and the straightforward. Find ways around it. This, again, is in order to help your artistic voice. You will develop a sixth sense for color. You will de develop an ability to put color together by doing little exercises and, and doing it frequently. It sounds like you're saying that for you, a big part of how you approach your own creativity and the way you teach it is if you have these questions, like if you're running into challenges with color or shape or drawing, step aside from the finished painting and figure out experiments to focus down in on that question you have and that that takes yeah. some of the pressure yeah. off. Absolutely. If you have a sketchbook, a scrapbook that you can refer to, sometimes you will make a painting and this and it really goes wrong. Of course it can. It happens to me. You don't expect something to be perfect all the time or, you know, sometimes you just know, well, this painting is now lost. I hardly ever will sort of destroy the painting, but I will literally paint it upside down or paint some of it out or see what else I can do or just put it away. I will put it away so I can't see it for a week and carry on with something else. Don't make it hard for yourself. You need to be gentle to yourself as well. It's, it's important. It's so easy to get too critical. This is something, this is something else I find with teaching. I, it's important for me for people not to find things to criticize themselves with by. We are just wired that way. We, we become that way inclined to sort of, somebody will say, oh, this is beautiful. I like what you did that. Yes, but that, that's something about the color. All my colors look a little bit. So, you know, so you, it's good to just look at what you've learned from the project or don't expect everything to fall in place all of a sudden, all of the time. How does someone learn to paint? Learning to paint is more than learning to paint. Learning to paint is learning to see. And learning to see comes from what you do every day. It's not a case of I'll do, I'll do something else and then one day a month or oh, on a Saturday morning, I'm just going to paint quickly. And it, it needs to become more ingrained in the way you view life. And there's a quote by Van Gogh that is quite appropriate. Okay. And it is, great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. And it's Van Gogh that said it. So it's the reason why I think this is important is it's the little practices every day. If you draw, if you pay attention to color, if you are aware of the creativity of the everyday, if things don't become mundane, if you can find the wonder in just looking at things from an artistic point of view, then it will feed into what you produce, regardless of where you are as an artist. Example, if you go to a grocery store and you look at vegetables and fruit, and you literally look at colors and shapes and you cut it open and you think, oh, well, how is that color made? And you go and you, you try with a basic set of watercolors and you try and make that color. What color goes with it? You can find inspiration in really in everyday things. It need not be magnificent, expensive, expansive. It need not be big. It's in the everyday. And that is what feeds an attitude and an aptitude to become a better artist. You can find more about Esty McLeod at her website, estymcleod.com, and on Instagram and Facebook, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Esty. 
I really enjoy that. Thank you very much for having me. And it's actually very interesting for me myself to review it and to talk about things that I might not necessarily have thought of in this way, you know, at all times. So it's been insightful for me as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 17 for show notes. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it by clicking the support button on the episode page. All right, happy painting.